I share with you that uh, we literally hope to go to the feet of Jesus this morning because what we'll be looking at in Luke chapter 7 is a, a narrative story, a story that he shares. We want to look at why he shared this story. It's the first of the parables there in Luke that he uh, shares with us that we have. Luke himself, you know, uh, is our only Gentile writer of Scripture. I think that's interesting. and I think when you begin studying Luke, that you see what God and the Holy Spirit had in mind in choosing him because of his perspective. We know that what the Holy Spirit did in bringing us the Word of God didn't in any way override the natural abilities, the, the personalities, the characteristics of the chosen writers. We know that. So it's interesting to look at Luke from that perspective, being the only Gentile writer of Scripture. So with that, and trying to take us up to the seventh chapter rather than just jumping right into the seventh chapter and watching y'all skimmer and scammer back through the Scriptures to see what's happened up to that point, just want to give you a little bit of an idea about what's been going on with Christ up to that point. Now we know that Luke begins, and he goes through with the birth, the baptism, of course, the genealogy talks about uh, John the Baptist, the temptations of Christ, all the way up through chapter 4. And then he leaves there, and we find Christ in Nazareth, where he was born, where he was, or where he was raised up. He's there in the temple, uh, preaching and teaching. We know what happened there. very first time that he ever came up and stood before the folks is that he's listened to with great excitement. He's listened to at that point, but before it's over, what are they trying to do? They want to take him up on a cliff and throw him off the cliff simply because he told the truth. Simply because he began with his message of repentance, which runs, of course, through the New Testament testament with every gospel writer and all of the others so there he is and it says that they were enraged with him and that's interesting to me because you have the absolute most perfect preacher who ever stood everything about him if you want to say his delivery certainly his knowledge everything that could possibly come through comes through perfectly in jesus christ and their response is to throw him off a cliff I've always thought that was interesting. That's the way his ministry began. And if we don't stop just for a moment to get an idea of what was happening around him, you won't understand the significance of what's going on in chapter 7 when he begins talking to a certain Pharisee and sharing a witness with him. He continues, he begins his uh, Galilean ministry there in Capernaum. And what is he doing? He's healing people left and right. He's casting out demons. He's going all over doing this. And it says in Luke in two or three different places that He healed everybody. He didn't just heal the people who came and believed that He was the Messiah. He healed everyone. And it's interesting to think about the impact that Christ would have had upon His society during that time. I mean, can you imagine? Certainly in the Middle Eastern world at that time, the impact that the ministry of Christ, the healing ministry of Christ had on all those people, they'd never seen anything like that. Never at all. 
So you've got the people, if you want to say the common people who love Him, who accept Him, and then you've got the Jews, you've got the, the Pharisees and the scribes and so forth watching Him very, very closely and being threatened by what's going on with His ministry. During this time, of course, He's uh, casting out demons. He calls Peter. He calls James, we find out. And then John, He calls John. He calls Andrew. He calls Matthew initially. And He's got these five. And then <clears throat> He forgives sins. He says, I'm, going to, I'm the one who forgives sins. He tells people like with the paralytic. He heals him. And he says, your sins are forgiven. You remember the guy that they let down? They tore a hole in the roof and let him down. They begin to murmur against him. and They begin to accuse him of blasphemy. This is what's going on with him. Later, he eats with sinners. When he calls Matthew or Levi at that time, they jump on him for going to uh, Levi's house. And it says that there was a great host of people who came that were friends of Matthew. Isn't that what you do when you come to Christ? That you want to share your newfound love for Christ with others, the people that you hang with, and that's what Levi was doing. And he caught criticism for that because he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. He gives that first parable in Luke, the one that deals with the cloth and the wineskins. And he begins telling them through parables that, look, you know, the, what you've been used to is not going to work anymore. The ritualistic life that's so much a part of your daily life and worship is not going to be sufficient. There's a fulfilling coming. Remember, Christ didn't come to change the law. He came to fulfill it. And He uses the analogy of the uh, wineskins and the old wine and the new wine. And He's letting them know that there's going to be a change. And they don't want change. The religious establishment doesn't want change. They don't want to hear the truth, no more than they wanted to hear the truth back in Nazareth when he began talking about what Elijah did and what Elisha did and how God didn't work through the Jews at that point. He chose to uh, save and do miracles for Gentile people. They didn't like that. And this is the atmosphere that's around Christ. I think it's important because so many times... We think of Him, Jesus Christ, and we might even picture Him, you know, as one of the most early, early symbols of uh, Christian faith with that lamb up over His shoulder, right? And, you know, patting the lamb. He's rescued the lamb. That is a very, very early symbol of the Christian faith. We see Him in that light. And He is all those things. But don't forget that there was a group of people from the onset that hated Him. They absolutely hated Him. And as his ministry grew, a ministry in which they could not deny, the miracles of Christ were never denied. All they could say ultimately is what you're doing, you're doing by the power of the devil. That's all they could say. But they could not say that the things did not happen. And they hated him for it. He loved sinners and they constantly looked for something to accuse him. So he's going through the, the grain fields in chapter 6, beginning with verse 1 there, and what's he and his disciples doing? They're plucking grain, but it just happens to be on the Sabbath. And they begin questioning him about that, looking for something to accuse him in. He continues his healing on the Sabbath. Remember, he heals the guy with the withered hand, also in chapter 6 in Luke. And the result there is that it says they were enraged at him. Absolutely enraged 
that he would disregard what the law says about the Sabbath and heal a person. And if you look at that wordage there, it's, it's a word when it's talk about being enraged. It's a very irrational word. You know, they're, they're, they're enraged and it doesn't even make sense because they're not rejoicing over the good that has been done on the Sabbath. doesn't make sense. And it just goes to show what their ultimate motivation is. It's to find something against Him no matter what. Well, again, in, in chapter 6, around verse 20, you got a shortened version, if you will, of the Beatitudes. Luke lists four there. And of course, we know we go to Matthew to get the whole list. Jesus continues teaching and He says, Look, I teach like I teach. And let me paraphrase a bit. And He says, You'll call me a glutton and you'll call me a wine-bibber. That's what the Pharisees were saying about Him. And that takes us up to chapter 7 through verse 34. And we'll begin in verse 36 here in just a moment. But take note of the fact at this point that they were watching Jesus very, very closely. They were watching Him constantly. They literally hounded Him. They, They always had people out looking and listening, keeping up with where he was for the sole purpose of trying to find something to discredit him and ultimately to condemn him. In uh, chapter 6, verse 7, we read it says, So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. In chapter 14 of Luke, verse 1, that happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. They watched him closely. That's what they were doing. And now, in chapter 11, verse 37, it says, Now as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went and sat to eat. And he continued there. And they began jumping on him because he didn't wash his hands before... He sat down to eat. So he you know, casts some woes out on them and, and talks about things that they really should be thinking about. And it says plainly in verse 54 there that they did that for the purpose of trying to catch him in something. Catch him in an error so that they could accuse him. Can you imagine preaching and teaching in such an environment? Can you? Jesus' words then are the same today. They're words that go to the heart of the matter. They're the words that expose sin because as the guys I teach in His Steps will tell you, because I say it over and over again, nothing happens until you repent. Nothing happens until you repent. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian. Repentance is what causes it to kick in, if you will. And understand now, these last two that I shared with you from verse 14, and, or, or rather chapter 14 and chapter 11, these are also two other examples where Jesus went to the house of a Pharisee to sit down and have a meal. And it was a fairly common thing to do. And that's exactly what He does in verse 36 of our passages today, which we'll begin looking at. Now understand, none of the Pharisees that He met with whether he went to their house. And we don't have every record of what Jesus did. John tells us that, that there's much much else that he did. He even says that the books couldn't hold it all. So we don't know what all he did, but we know that he was busy doing it. But understand, they didn't really care 
about the niceties. They didn't invite Jesus over to eat at their house because all of a sudden they'd had some sort of epiphany about the Scripture and so forth and were seeking that kind of thing. There's no evidence of that. And if it happened, we don't see it in Scripture, certainly don't see it here. So why do they call Him there? It's the same old purpose. I think it's a, a veiled expectation of some sort of entertainment that He can provide because He's so different. They know that He has power in and around Him. Maybe they're thinking that well, some of that will rub off on them. But the most consistent thing that they have in common is as we've already said, they're looking for something to accuse Him by. And that's why they invite Him over. Well, this one is really no different. And we look at verse 36 of chapter 7. And it reads, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And it says that Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. And then something unusual happens. Something very strange happens. According to the word, something very shocking happens. In verse 37 it says, And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box or an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. That's what happened. So Luke here introduces us to these two characters, the two main characters apart from Christ, of course. We've got this Pharisee who invites Jesus. Jesus comes. Now he knows what's going on. Obviously, we know that Christ knows the, the purpose and the intent for him being invited there. We also learn later in verse 40 that this Pharisee has a name. His name is Simon. Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus goes anyway. He goes on. But this word, behold, in verse 37, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner came. That word indicates this, this shocking atmosphere that's going on. That's why it's used here. In other words, there's something that's happening here that normally wouldn't happen. You, you would never find these two together. You would never find someone, at least in his residence, you would need not find someone like Simon the Pharisee and then a woman of the world. And in all likelihood, even though it doesn't say in all likelihood, she's a prostitute. You wouldn't find them together. Certainly not in his house, because it says plainly that she is a sinner. She is a sinner, publicly known as a sinner. So this is very interesting. And Jesus, in telling this, would be getting their attention very, very quickly uh, as he begins later talking about why she's there. And we'll see... She's there uh, sovereignly. (laughs) She's there because I'm sure Christ wants her there because He's going to use her and use her example as an evangelistic tool. That's what He does. Verse 38, when she comes in and she has this alabaster flask, which right off the bat says that, look, this is something very expensive. An alabaster flask, I understand, would have been something made from most likely Egyptian marble. Very expensive. And what's uh, the use of the flask itself would say that what's contained inside is very expensive. And it was made in such a way, particularly for a perfume or a, a fragrance, it was made in such a way that it was capped and sealed 
to hold all that aroma in. And in order to use it, what did you have to do? You had to break it. You had to break this expensive flask. So to have this thing introduced, you know, conjured up different images in the minds of the people who heard it there. Okay? Many people would have probably have looked at this uh, perfume. Obviously, the first thing they would have thought, knowing her as a woman, a public sinner, thinking that, well, this is, a, this is part of her trade. Okay? This is something that she has for her chosen profession. All this is going on. It's shocking at that point. At verse 38, it says, when she came in with the fragrant oil, it says, and she stood at his feet, talking about at Jesus' feet. She stood behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And it says that she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Can you imagine the scene? As shocking as it is. So what's the result? What do we get from Simon the Pharisee when this happens? And it says in verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to, he spoke to himself. Simon spoke, he just said in his mind, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, At this point, you might be tempted to think, well, I've heard this story before. And you may be thinking about Matthew 26 or Mark chapter 14 or over in John chapter 12. That is a totally different account. That's a totally different story. We're at Jesus' Galilean ministry here. That that happened somewhere else. That happened in Bethany, I believe it was. Yeah, That happened. There were some similarities. The guy there was Simon, but he was Simon the leper. This is, this is not. This is Simon the prophet. There was a, an alabaster flask involved in both, which would not have been uncommon. An alabaster flask could have been common, was common in that day for people who could afford it, as was the name Simon. Don't put those together. These are different events in the Word of God. So I just mentioned that in case you're familiar with those Scriptures. Luke lays out the situation at the dinner as Jesus reclines at the table. And you understand what that would look like in the normal Middle Eastern fashion. They're not sitting there in chairs around a dinner table. Uh, He's laying down on the ground, if you will, at a low table. Uh, The idea was really to keep your feet away from the table. And that, of course, is why when she comes up to Jesus with a particular intent in her mind, when she comes up, as close as she can get to Him is to His feet. And that's where she begins doing, in part, what she came to do. Understand, of course, she's there, and she is, of course, uninvited. She would not have been invited to this. Not going to happen. And she wasn't identified, and this is interesting, perhaps because of the crowd, perhaps because... Who knows? Maybe it was dusk. We don't know. Maybe she had her face covered. Maybe it was just that everybody there was focusing upon Jesus and what was going on. We don't know that. Maybe even that Jesus veiled her eyes to get her in there. We don't know that. But we do know that she made her way inside. Now I also learned in in looking at this that what happened during those days, particularly if a, a Pharisee or any person of nobility would invite someone over, to their house that it would kind of turn out to be an open-air event. And they would purposely 
leave the windows and doors open and people would literally come by. It would have been uh, known throughout the town just like it was for this woman here. When she heard that Jesus was going to be there, she went. And people were expected to come by. Now, they didn't come in, but they could look and see. And if they... uh, If the people inside ventured out a bit, they could ask questions and so forth. It was kind of like a a social event. A social event. They didn't have six flags, okay? So that's what they did. That's how they gathered around those types of events. So the doors were left left open and there were spectators. At any rate, it took a tremendous amount of courage for this woman to come. And it's obvious that something had happened in her life. Something had happened. And she could not be deterred. You know that she would fully expect derision and comments about her, perhaps even violence extended toward her. She knew who she was. She knew what she was. She knew it was public public information. But she came anyway. And then, of course... Luke gives us the response of Simon the Pharisee. And what he does is kind of, if you'll pardon the expression, tip his hand. Because he shows that what he's about is accusing Jesus because the first thing he does is indict Jesus and claim that there's no way that he could be a prophet. He really shows his real purpose in his his veiled, his gracious invitation to Jesus was for a negative purpose. Yes, sir? Do you think it might be possible that this woman was, was working for the Pharisees and this was a polluted, predetermined? Could be, but who knows? We don't have any record of that. I mean, I don't see anything in there. Uh, we know, well, the only thing we could say about that, I don't know about this particular instant, but we know that they're not past going and getting people and paying them to do or to testify or whatever like they want them to do. We know that that was in their repertoire at some point. Who knows? There's a lot we don't know. But Jesus knew what was in her heart. The next few things he's talking to Simon said, you see this woman? Yeah. I mean, if he thought she was a fake, right. he would have said so. Right. You're all over my notes here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's good. No, not at all. That's good. Glad you're engaged. That's good. He reveals, not at all, he reveals the real purpose of his gracious invitation. And he shows that he knows who the woman is too, does he not? He knows who she is. And he doesn't jump on her. He jumps on Jesus. And I think that's the, the biggest thing. He calls her what she is, but he says in his mind, not out openly, But he says in his mind these things about, look, there's no way he could be a prophet. He would know who this woman is. And this is interesting, and you'll see why in just a moment. He believes that Jesus has simply defiled himself by allowing her to touch him, to have any contact with him. Because the Pharisees, as we learn over in chapter 19, or rather chapter 18, verse 9, what does it say about them there? It says that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, And not only that, they despised others. They despised others. This was his attitude. But when we move up to verse 40, verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now here's where you see it. Simon thought these things in his mind. Jesus answered him. 
Okay, this is God in flesh here. He's a mind reader. All right, and we know that there are other. Well, even in Luke here, the examples in Luke chapter five, verse twenty-two, it says, "But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, talking about the paralytic that I alluded to earlier, when they began accusing him and, and saying, who can forgive sins?'" They said this in their head. Jesus heard it and responded and said, okay, I understand. I can say I forgive sins. There's no way to prove that. But so you'll know, hey man, get up and walk. And the guy got up and walked. You know, He understood what they were saying. In Luke chapter 6, verse 8, it says, but he knew their thoughts in the incident with the withered hand because they were grumbling amongst themselves about Him healing on the Sabbath. He knew that. And it tells us Jesus is totally in control of this situation. There's nothing going on here. It doesn't matter about how much they hate Him, what they want to do to Him. He's totally in control of this situation. Nothing is going to happen to Jesus until His work is finished. He's God in flesh. Luke chapter 11, verse 17, but Jesus knew their thoughts. That's when He's dealing with the demoniac, the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And that's where they told Him, said, well, you get what? You do the things that you do by the power of the devil, Beelzebub. That's what they said to Him. He knew that. He knew what they were thinking. And it should have registered with Simon here, should it not? He's thinking something and Christ responds. And if it did click with him, there's no indication of it here, but we can read it and know today that Christ was totally in charge of this. So he tells him, I've got something to say to you. And Simon says, and the indication is that he responded in a cold and curt way. He said, well, teacher, say it. Kind of curt, just reading it in the English, isn't it? Just say it. Who knows? He might have been doing something elsewhere, doing something else, getting his plans ready after seeing this woman come in. Who knows? He tells him this parable. And it's very, very simple. Told for a specific purpose. A creditor with two debtors is what it's about. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to pay, he freely forgave them both. And he says, Tell me therefore, which of them will love him more. And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Two creditors, 500 denarii. You're talking about somewhere around 18 months wages, about a year and a half's wages. That set against a guy who was forgiven just 50 denarii. A couple of months. A couple of months wages. But he's talking about a total debt relief, a total debt forgiveness, and of course, one in which the one who relieved the debt assumed the burden of the debt. That's what he understood. Neither could pay the debt. And he says that they were both freely forgiven. And if you drag out your helps and you study the word there, that word that's used there is a word that talks about grace. It speaks of grace. I understand it's the same root. He was freely forgiven. Nothing he could do to earn it. And this is the problem with the Pharisees because they did not understand grace. They could not conceive of a heartfelt deep repentance and finding acceptance with God apart from some form, some system of merit. 
It's like it, it didn't enter into their brain because we see it time and time again. If you go to Luke chapter 15 with the story of the, the prodigal son as we know it, Jesus' audience there is the same. He's, he's telling this for the benefit of the scribes and Pharisees and there's no evidence at all that they even get it whatsoever. And I have to, it begs the question, is the world today just as deaf, just as blinded, blinded by false religion, blinded by the things, the cares of the world, if you will. For Christ Himself said that these are the things that come up and they choke out the Word of God. They literally choke it out. So we ask a simple question. It doesn't have to be complex. Which of them will love Him the most? And I don't know. I don't know what kind of tone that Simon answered him with, but he says, I suppose the one he forgave more. Don't know how he said that. It could have been a number of, of, of things. Maybe he thought Christ was trying to trick him or was trying to set him up for some kind of embarrassment or something. But it's an, unusual, an unusually uh, lame response. I suppose, I suppose the one who forgave him more... Jesus just simply says, you've rightly judged. You've called it right. You got it right. That's exactly right. In verse 44, it begins. It says, then he turned to the woman and said, do you see this woman? And it's what my sister here is talking about. And it's clear that Christ is using her for an example. And I say it, she's not there by happenstance. She's not there. I believe she's there because she was appointed to be there. And Christ is using her. He's using her example as an evangelistic tool. That's what He's doing. Do you see this woman? He makes her the focus from His perspective. And He adds, You gave me no water for my feet, which in that day, culturally speaking, would have been a tremendous oversight. Uh, You know how it was. You got dirty, did you not? Feet got dirty. You know from studying the Bible that you know, it was the lowest slave who came in and washed people's feet. It was a very demeaning task. Or they would supply water out there and you could clean your own. He didn't even do that for Jesus. Maybe it's because, maybe that indicates something about His original intent to get Christ there. He didn't consider the, the normal niceties of inviting someone over to your house. What would you do, particularly for a meal? No water for Jesus to wash His feet. He says, You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. Such great humility. Where did all this come from? What's going on? And it's interesting to look at the wordage here. Really, it's the word wet. She's wet my feet with her tears. And it's the word that's the actual word is rain. So the picture here is that she is just crying profusely. There's an overwhelming outpouring of emotion from this woman, enough to wet his feet to the point that she can take her hair, let her hair down, which quite frankly was a no no in that culture, take her hair down. And for want of a towel or anything else, in their humility, begin wiping his dirty, nasty feet. Her intent was to get to his head, remember? 
That's what that flask is all about. You would anoint the head. She couldn't get that far. But it didn't stop her from doing what she came to do. She lets her hair down. She does this thing. Verse 45, he says, You gave me no kiss. That again would have been a very common gesture in that day. To greet your guests with a kiss. We don't necessarily understand that in our society, but it was commonplace in that day. That did not happen either. That did not happen. The word kiss there is the same word that's used in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. With the prodigal, which I referred to earlier, you you recall the story where he's coming back and his father sees him coming from a distance. And he runs, another no-no, he runs and grabs the prodigal son. And he begins kissing him. It's the same word and it's it's a word that's like it means over and over again. It's a very intense word. A lot of emotion going on here. You know, so many times we we frown against, we put up a caution against emotion sometimes, do we not? You know, genuine emotion is good if it reflects what's in the heart and it's appropriate. This woman can't be contained. She cannot be contained. Lavishness. This is the key. Later in, in Luke 15, that's about lavishness because of what has happened. And in this case, what's happened to her Specifically, her forgiveness. It's the same word. It's also the same word in Acts chapter 20, verse 37, where Paul is leaving the Ephesians. And you know the tender scene there when he's leaving and he says that they began crying and weeping because of what he said to them, that they would not see his face anymore. They burst out in uncontrollable weeping. They're crying because they love Paul. And they know, according to his words, that They won't see Him again. This is what Christ is conveying here. This is the picture for us today. They're seeing it. We have it through the Holy Spirit, through Luke here. We can go back and capture this and see exactly what was going on. In verse 46, Jesus continues and He adds, He says, You did not anoint My head with oil. That again would have been common. But it would have been something like olive oil. It wouldn't have been an expensive fragrance. It would have been the stuff that you keep around that you do, you know, the niceties that you do. You let them clean their feet and you give them a kiss and you anoint their head. He didn't do any of that. None of that. Not to Christ. What does she do? An expensive vial or flask that has to be broken in order for the expensive contents to be taken out and poured upon Him. Money was no issue. Not if it hindered her from expressing what was in her heart. This great love for Christ and what He had done for her. He says, but this woman, she's anointed my feet. Not my head. She's anointed my feet. She can't be stopped in her lavishness. This is going somewhere. Stay with me. Very, very humbling. Very, very expensive. All of this, can we say at this point, this is evidence of a changed life. This is evidence 
of an event. Something has happened in her life. She is forever changed. The the normal niceties and, and sensibilities of society are not going to hinder her from worshiping and serving her Lord. They're not going to happen. This is where she is. Now there's another thing that we might want to stop and look at here, and I'll tell you up front, I didn't even think about this when I was studying the Scripture, but I saw a comment that MacArthur had made about what's going on here, and it just, it it don't know me. Hey, listen, this woman's actions could have been, you know, that which put Christ in sort of a precarious situation. Is Is it obvious to you by now? If not, let me tell you what I'm talking about. I mean, here's a lady most likely a prostitute, a known public sinner. What is she doing? She's touching him. She's coming up with this perfume. She's weeping profusely. She's letting her hair down. Listen, you did not do that publicly. In their co- you did not do that. That would have been considered loose or lewd. She does it for the purpose of wiping his feet for want of a towel. Kissing him in the manner that we've described. Kissing his feet. I know there was somebody in the crowd going, hmm, how does he know her? Okay. What is she doing? She brought her perfume and everything. I mean, you know what I'm saying? But it's interesting. And we only mention it to get a hold of this truth. I mean, Simon said these things in his mind. He did not bring a railing accusation against Jesus. He didn't do that. What do you think that speaks of? Why didn't Simon do that? Why didn't he say, aha? Why didn't he do that? What do you think? Probably waiting on the power of the mom to do it for <laughs> Could be. Jesus was hated for a reason. Jesus was hated because he was real. He was hated because he was the real deal. Okay? He had the power. Listen, and not only that, he could live the life. He was living the life. They tried. I mean, can you imagine? Hounding Him, looking, watching. They could find nothing. Nothing. This is our Savior. He's the Lamb, perfect and spotless without blemish. That's who He is. That's a good thing for you and I today because that's what Christ requires. or That's what God requires in Christ. He paid our sin debt. And He was perfect. And even with all of this, they had a moment of pause, or at least Simon did. He has a moment of pause. He's not going to openly, verbally accuse him in that regard. He's simply going to accuse him of being ignorant. You just don't know who this woman is. You just don't know. That's what he's saying. And it moves on from there. Listen, there was a power around Christ because He was the virgin-born Son of God. He was the Word made flesh. It's just like when they sent those out to get Him and they came back and they said, well, where is He? We sent you to get Him. Where is He? Well, uh, hmm, never a man spoke like this man. Listen, thinking about what you brought up, there was something undeniably authentic. Absolutely. Whether it's his miracles or what has the appearance of something a little bit untoward, really isn't, and everybody knew it wasn't. Her right. was clear, it was obvious, regardless of her past, even denying what was happening. And so, apart from the veil that they shared, they couldn't admit it either. No. Because they would have to bow themselves. That's right. And Jesus knew that. He used that same thing 
you know, well, you know, they try to catch him. Oh, they, when they said, well, where does your authority come from? Tell us where do you get it. Where does your authority come from? They said, well, let me ask you something. The, the baptism of John, was it from God or was it from men? Same kind of thing. And they thought about it, you know. Well, we can't say it was from men. They'll jump on us, the crowd will. If we say it was from God, he'll say, well, why, why didn't you follow him? So they gave another sheepish answer. We don't know. You know like your four-year-old, I don't know. You know. They couldn't. They couldn't without condemning themselves. They couldn't answer that question. Interesting. That's our Christ. That's who He was. That's the impact He had on that society under those types of expectations. Verse 47, what's the result? He says, Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven. Why? Because she loved much. She loved much. Now when you read that, a cursory reading in the English looks like, oh, she was forgiven because she loved much. No, that's not what it says. Because if you go and read like I do, listen, the verb usage there is a perfect tense verb. It describes, or it's describing action completed in the past with continuing results in the present. Christ knows that what's happened to her, the forgiveness that's a reality in her life has already happened. She's there out of great gratitude. She's there out of a heart of thanksgiving. That's why she's there. And I say it again, she's also there by design. Christ uses her example as a witnessing tool, an evangelistic tool in front of Simon and all the rest of those who were there. But to whom little is given, the same loves little. This can be an indictment for us today. This is Christ teaching about how we show our love and affection for Him. And it's quiet in here as it should be. Because that's exactly what He's bringing to mind here. That's why I'm confident. That's why we have this today to read it. So that we can do what Paul says, that we can go sit on a rock and examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. To see whether, if we are in the faith, what what we're doing for Christ by way of worship, by way of service, is it rightly motivated? Is it because of the person of Jesus Christ and His claim on our life? Why? Because He has taken our sin away. That's, That's the only motivational factor. It's the only valid one. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Jesus began His ministry. You go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. He began preaching repentance. Pre- uh, Peter preaches repentance, as you know, in Acts chapter 2. Paul talks about repentance in Acts 17 and in Acts 20. He says that all men everywhere should Repent. And then he talks about repentance and faith in chapter 20. This is what it's about. And I said earlier, nothing happens until we repent over any issue in our life. Saving faith produces acts of worship and acts of service. And these bring assurance in the life of the believer. He says again in verse 48, read it, then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And he uses that same perfect tense verb. It's something that's happened in the past and what's happening right now is a manifestation of that which has taken place in your heart. Jesus' words also indicate that He is the one 
who's done the forgiving. Forgiveness has come through Him. And He says that. And then, of course, He gets the same response from those at the table who were there with Him. They begin to say to themselves, Who is this one who even forgives sins? He's already dealt with this, right? With the paralytic. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, back in Luke chapter 5, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, He says in Luke 19.10, over there when we're dealing with Zacchaeus. rather. For this is My blood of the covenant, which is shed for many, the remission of sins... Matthew 26, 28, Christ our Redeemer. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance from Paul. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul saw himself as a chief of sinners who needed forgiveness from Christ. So he dismisses this woman finally in verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Not your works. Not your expressions of gratitude and thanksgiving. It is your faith that has saved you. Her acts were the result, not the cause, of her salvation. And her testimony became a tool for Christ to use. Why? Because she had a testimony. Because something genuine, something undeniable had happened in her life. She was going to express her gratitude no matter what. So, in closing, why do we need to hear this today? Why do we need to hear it today? What's what's the message for us today? I think we can find that message by turning over to the Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 briefly and just let them speak to us as Christ addresses what's titled in, in my Bible here at the top, the loveless church the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? Or to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This is what he says. He says, I know your works. I know. I know your labor. I know your patience. and That you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars, and you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. That's, that's a pretty good accolade, don't you think? But in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You've left it. Remember therefore from where you've fallen. Repent. And do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
the church at Ephesus was doing a lot of good. They were doctrinally sound. They stood for the Word. And the Word of God is telling us right here that it's possible to do those things, to do them on the surface, to do them even in a routine manner. And all the time we're doing them, we've lost our true love. We're not focused upon the person of Christ. We may know the Word inside and out, but it must be mixed with faith. If it's mixed with faith, that's because of something that's happened to us, right? I mean, love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Only born-again people have the Holy Spirit. It stands to reason. So we guard our love. We look at it. We examine it. We want to know that it's real and that what we're doing is properly motivated by love for Christ. No other reason. None. No other reason. So three questions and we're done. For how much have you been forgiven? That's my question this morning to me and to the class. Have I contemplated it? Do I know my debt? I don't want to have to be reminded at some point, look, you need to go back and remember from where you've fallen. Okay, what's happened? We want to move on from our past, don't we? And rightly, we should in one context. But we don't want to forget what we were before we experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ in our life. Secondly, when is the last time that you were moved to gratitude? When is the last time? You know, ingratitude, being unthankful, is a, is a characteristic of unbelievers. It's throughout the New Testament. It's particularly in Romans 1. Nor were they thankful. It's a characteristic of unbelief. And then lastly, how would a great love for Christ, a great love for Christ, change your life? How would that happen? What impact would it have on your life today? Let's pray.